You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing religion and the CIA, America's Central Intelligence Agency. Why has the CIA cared about religion? What have been some of the ideas about religion that have driven CIA missions overseas? And how have some of the CIA's misunderstandings about religion backfired when their ideas about religion have been tragically wrong? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Michael Graziano. He is the author of the book, Errand into the Wilderness of Mirrors, Religion and the History of the CIA. You can read an excerpt from his book in the upcoming November issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Mike. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I have to say I was very excited to read your book because I had never given much thought to the role religion played within the CIA or how the CIA has conducted its missions. So I was fascinated and a bit alarmed by (laughs) what you report in the book. So to get us started, can you tell us why has the CIA cared about religion And what role has religion played or what role has trying to understand religion played in the CIA's mission and in their espionage? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, the CIA cares about religion because Americans care about religion. Hmm. And the CIA is, of course, staffed by Americans. And one of the things that comes up again and again in my book is what happens when people go into their workplace and bring their ideas and education and, you know, influence from the broader culture with them and sometimes uh, don't realize just how much that shapes them. And then sometimes that workplace is the CIA. Mm. In terms of how it impacts their mission or what they did, mm-hmm. there's basically three big reasons. I think the first is that the CIA and, and the folks who worked in it tended to see religion as a kind of universal translator, that even if you're talking with people who are really different than you, who might speak another language or live under another system of government, that religion at its core is the same everywhere. Hmm. So even if the religion was different, right, even Mm -hmm. if they're Muslim or Jewish or whatever, there's a way to kind of access a shared human experience and religion could be that link. Hmm. Um, And then aside from that, the other big reason is that they tended to think that people who were religious were naturally going to be pro-American because to be religious was to be pro-freedom, to be pro-freedom was to be Mm -hmm. anti-Soviet, and that these things just sort of naturally uh, work together. And then last but not least for the agency was the idea that paying attention to religion had some really helpful side effects at home, um, especially thinking about the rise of religious toleration after World War II. So I want to backtrack just a little bit historically. You say in the book that the CIA's predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services, established by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1942, was, as you explain in the book, rather preoccupied with the Roman Catholic Church. So can you explain why and how that shaped there and then the CIA's work more broadly? Yeah, so the OSS was led by a guy by the name of William Donovan, who was Catholic. And it's worth noting on its own that the head of the OSS was Catholic and everything that meant that he sort of brought to his job. 
But even as he was chosen for the job, he's an interesting example of just how complicated it was to be Catholic in the U.S. at that time, mm. because he's a guy whose earlier political career was really sidelined because of his Catholicism um, and the kind of anti-Catholic stuff you would see at the in the popular media about, you know, if you elect this guy, he's going to work for the Pope or whatever. Mm. And this is also a time when, you know, groups like the KKK can be quoted as reliable sources in the New York Times. So these are the kinds of things he's mm. he's up against. Yes. When he does get the job and starts kind of thinking about what America's intelligence effort should be during the war, though, an interesting thing happens where when he and his team are thinking about uh, how to access information from around the world and really starting from nothing or very little, one of the things that happens very quickly is he decides that the Vatican should be a focus and the institutional Catholic Church should be a focus because, as he understands it, it's at the helm of this global information network. They have outposts or churches everywhere. Mm -hmm. The people on the ground right, speak the local language. Um, and if we could sort of tap into that network, we could find out info from all over the world, which in a global war they thought would be really useful. Mm. But what's interesting about this is that that motivation of his um, and the motivation of the OSS to work with the Vatican, because it was this kind of, you know, oasis of uh, secret knowledge, mm. that in and of itself is influenced by these broader anti-Catholic ideas that, right. you know, saw the Vatican as just wrapped in secrecy and mystery and things like this. Um, and as we know today, the Vatican was something of an uh, living in an information vacuum during the war. They they actually knew very little. And so what ended up happening was that Donovan and his team were insistent, right, that sort of cracking the Vatican or working with the Pope or, or whatever, the higher-ups, was going to sort of lead to these really remarkable finds. And so as a result, sometimes this blinds them to mm. things that were too good to be true. So one story that I talk about in the book is how at one point, uh, the OSS office in Rome comes across these documents that promise to be basically uh, just ridiculously useful, it's like Japanese war plans or something like this. And it's unclear exactly why they would be in Rome, but nonetheless, that's where they were. Okay. Um, and so Donovan and his team find them, they vet them, and they're like, this is amazing. And so they send it on to Roosevelt, and it's on his desk, right? It's like this intelligence coup, like, look what we did by trying to work through the church. And then it turns out... Uh, that these documents were actually fabrications. They were actually uh, these forged documents produced by an unemployed Italian pornographer, of all things. Um, <laughs> right? and, and who among us hasn't purchased forged state secrets from an unemployed Italian pornographer? <laughs> but unfortunately, right, that, you know, those documents had already gone to the president, right? They'd already sort of been presented as this amazing find. And that blows up in the OSS's face. It's an incredible embarrassment. But it's a really good illustration of the fact that if you think that the Catholic Church is just safeguarding all of these incredible secrets, you're going to be uh, more likely to think that you found these incredible secrets. Right. I mean, that's funny, but also it sounds very dangerous. I mean, yes. we're dealing with world possible war, etc. So I guess I have a technical question beyond what you've just described then. When we get into the period of the CIA, how did they go about learning about religion? You had mentioned that they thought that people around the world who were religious, that would be a way of unifying them in the war against communism. So what process, if any, did they go through to try to understand religious traditions and people? Did they partner with scholars? Did they send operatives to different places to try to do a type of field work? And if they wanted to know about the religious motivations of people in Vietnam or Korea or wherever, how exactly would they go about doing that? So one thing that was really interesting to me as I started learning about the CIA, um, and something that I think is often 
overlooked is that the CIA historically is a massive research institution. Hmm. Um, they hire a ton of people to do a lot of different research about everything under the sun. Um, when I interviewed people for this book who worked at the agency or worked with the agency, um, one thing I heard a lot was that, like, yes, the CIA does have an operational wing. Like, yes, they do this sort of stuff that you see in movies, but that by and large, they hire a lot of nerds to do really mm -hmm. nerdy stuff. Um, and they hire people who feel passionate about, like, a certain kind of footnote or something. <laughs> um, and so part of it is that they produce their own research. They, they do a ton of research work. But as I was going through the CIA records, I also found not just evidence of their own research, but staying on top of academic books or popular articles. Hmm. And they would occasionally partner with scholars or scholarly societies. They'd reach out to particular experts to interview them. They'd occasionally hold conferences. And they'd also, of course, talk to people in the field who weren't scholars but would know things. So hmm. people like missionaries, for example, hmm. who they presumed would have a unique vantage point on the situation in country X. They wouldn't hesitate to talk to those people. The result of all that, though, is that the CIA just has an incredible concentration of information about everywhere to the point that, you know, one of the most public facing parts of the CIA today is the CIA World Factbook. And for those who don't know this, you can go to the CIA World Factbook online and it is a book of facts about the world maintained by the CIA down to like um, I was looking at it just a few days ago and like their most recent update is about like hydrological issues on like water security in various countries. Mm. I mean, like it's very sort of detailed, granular information about anywhere on the planet. And the idea, right, that you have a government organization that maintains this is sort of taken as a, you know, just regular thing. Like, yeah, you know, elementary school kids can use this in their reports or whatever. But right, this is one of the downstream effects of, of just how much information they're able to assemble. So then that's a very helpful to know about their process of data accumulation. So I'm curious, because you bring various examples up in the book, can you tell us about a time then when the CIA misunderstood religion and what were the ramifications of that misunderstanding? So one that comes to mind for me is the CIA's role in South Vietnam in the early days of the American intervention in Vietnam. And to make a long story short, American leaders, you know, as they're learning about South Vietnam and sort of trying to figure out the best way to intervene, when it comes to the religion of South Vietnam, and, and South Vietnam was an overwhelmingly Buddhist country, uh, one of the conversations that Eisenhower actually has with his national security team is the this frustration that they're Buddhist because that I forget exactly who says it, but it's recorded in, in one of these um, kind of memorandums of the meetings that the that the Buddha is a lover, not a fighter, right? And so we can't sort of count on Buddhists to fight for their own country because, right, they're all just like meditating all the time and being really peaceful, which is, of course, nonsense, right? Yes. But, right, everyone at the time is like, hmm, right, mm, good point, yeah. And so, you know, what do we do? And they learn that there's a Catholic minority in South Vietnam and, you know, everyone's like, oh, Catholics will fight. And so they decide that the way to do this is to sort of present South Vietnam as a Catholic country. Um, this is a Christian country under threat from mm. godless communism. Mm. And one of the chapters in my book is about the sort of public relations effort that the CIA undergoes to sell Americans on the idea of a Catholic South Vietnam, both to uh, raise awareness of the plight of South Vietnam, but also to sort of present an image of uh, Catholics as good Christians, um, hmm. which would be useful both in South Vietnam and then at home in the United mm -hmm. States. And of course, one of the outcomes of this is that, you know, if you think that all Buddhists are peaceful and all Catholics are violent or whatever, 
you're not going to be able to actually interpret or explain what ends up happening during the American intervention in Vietnam. So when you have, you know, Buddhist monks uh, lighting themselves on fire or, you know, widespread protests by Vietnamese Buddhists or dissatisfaction among Vietnamese Catholics, there's a struggle to interpret that in terms of the framework that already existed. Um, and this is going to lead some of these interpretations astray. Interesting. So I'd like to stay on this topic of misunderstanding things and uh, talk about one of the chapters that I particularly enjoyed uh, had to do with Iran in the 1970s. And you show how the CAA really misunderstood the religious and political situation in 1970s Iran and that they failed to anticipate the Iranian revolution in 1979. So can you explain why? What did they think was going on? And how do you explain their inability to have seen that revolution coming? I think there's two big reasons. The first is that uh, the first one's material, that basically the U.S. had invested heavily in Iran as a keystone of its foreign policy. Um, and so there's a certain amount of wishful thinking there. I think that, you know, that uh, bad things aren't going to happen. But the second and the one I talk about most in the book is an ideological reason. Um, basically, that a lot of American intelligence officers were very confident that they understood which way world history was going, which for them was like towards modernization, towards progress, towards secularization. And religion was done in the sense of religion being a driver of global events. It's not to say religion was bad, religion was fine, but it was private, it was tame. Mm. And so there's this idea in some of the CIA documents before the revolution that, you know, even if Iranians didn't like the Shah, you know, even if they weren't wild about the Shah, which, spoiler alert, they were not, <laughs> they wouldn't overthrow him because they were a religious people. And overthrowing the Shah would strengthen Soviet communists who hated religion. Hmm. And there's very little middle space to interpret anything between those two options. And so as the revolution is developing, one of the things that really, really struck me is the way that the CIA analysis, again, before the revolution, paints um, Ayatollah Khomeini as someone from an earlier time period, almost to the point of seeming like a literal time traveler that his ideas were from the Stone Age. He couldn't mm -hmm. run a modern country. And mm -hmm. that even if he was successful, again, he was a Muslim, thus he was religious, thus he would have to be aligned with US interests because again, the Soviets were godless, atheists, communists. Right. And of course, underneath all this, there's really quite racist understandings of Muslims and, and what it means that they're religious, which on one hand is good to be religious, but on the other hand, they're religious because it's familiar to them and they're unintelligent, simple people who are averse to change. Mm. And all of this, I think, sort of, contributes to a feedback loop downplaying the, the likelihood of the revolution. So you said in that answer, and really throughout our conversation, a few different assumptions that it seems like the CIA carried about religion that I, as you make clear in the book, reflect broader American cultural assumptions. And so I'd like to sort of highlight that you say that CIA operatives understood the practices and beliefs, the things that they called religion through a uniquely American lens. Can you say specifically what you mean by that? And then generally, what are the implications? I think it's important for us all to think about as the ways these shape our ideas of the world. Absolutely. I'd say three things come to mind. The first is that it's this idea, again, that everyone everywhere has religion. Um, it's the idea that that religion that everyone has is essentially private rather than public.
public, that it's important to people, but it's not necessarily important for the public square. Mm -hmm. And finally, it's the idea that everyone sees religion and politics as different things, that religion and politics are always already separate. Mm. Another way of saying all that, though, is that being self-reflective is hard. It's hard to think critically about our own ideas and how they shape us and the things that makes us see as natural or not natural. So some of these American intelligence officers had a lot of trouble seeing that the U.S. had its own distinct culture and ideology that might not be shared by everyone. Hmm. Um, basically, that U.S. ideology isn't a kind of you know default ideology for all humans. You know, an example that comes to mind again about Iran is that after the revolution, the CIA analysis changes really dramatically, as you might imagine. But one of the things that's in there that really stuck out to me is they note that what they call the Islamic languages, and they're, they're thinking about things like Arabic or Persian, they say that the Islamic languages, you know, don't even have a word for secular, that like there's no direct translation to this. Mm -hmm. And that this is evidence of how peculiar Muslim ideas about the modern religion are because they're unable to understand the reality of the modern world, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than reading it in reverse to say that there's anything sort of peculiar or noteworthy about like Western or Christian ideas about the modern world. You know, and this is again why I think, to go back to why the agency struggles to anticipate the revolution, it, it's, you know, it's that challenge on a broader scale, um, because a lot of the analysis before the revolution notes that Ayatollah Khomeini's brand of Islam was kind of confusing because it was social, it was political, it was economic, it was everything. And the agency interpreted that as evidence that folks wouldn't kind of follow it because it was just too confusing, right? Like mm -hmm. if you just say that's religion, like no one knows what that means. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not at all what happens. I was struck by this because in talking to some people who actually worked in and around the agency's effort in um, Iran in the late 70s, uh, one of them told me, you know, we didn't understand that Islam was more than a religion, which is, I think, a really telling way to put it, right? It's, again, sort of thinking about what this thing is beyond how Americans have thought about religion traditionally. So you've mentioned the Cold War a couple of times, so I want to make sure we talk about it since it uh, is pretty central to a lot of what you discuss in the book. So during the Cold War, it seemed that American intelligence officers thought they could manipulate religion or maybe manipulate religious people around the world to benefit them in their war against the communist Soviet Union. Can you give us an example of how that played out and what happened? Sure. There's a lot of interesting examples from the book. One, one person I really zoom in on um, is this guy, Ed Lansdale, who was a sort of legendary American intelligence officer. Um, he's associated with the CIA, though never formally works for them. He was just an interesting guy. So one example is that he develops um, what I ended up calling world religion flashcards. Uh, and so he had this idea that like every religion had a golden rule hmm. and you just had to figure out what that golden rule was. So again, there's this idea, right, that like every religion is sort of built on, you know, the framework of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and so if you could figure out what the golden rule was, you could talk to anyone. You know, this idea that, again, religion serves as the kind of ultimate translation guide. So he would have these cards and it would be like, you know, if the person you're talking to knows about uh, Lao Tzu, which um, I, I think was, according to these cards, the golden rule for Lao Tzu was something like, um, you know, if your neighbor has something good happen to them, regard it as a good thing for you. And then if they knew that, but not Jesus, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, you could use the cards and kind of meet in the middle at, say, the Buddha. 
which is, you know, the Buddha's golden rule was like, hurt not others in ways that you would want to be hurt or something. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea, because on one hand, right, you could read that and be like, oh, that's insane. Um, but on the other hand, there's a way of looking at that and seeing like, okay, whatever else we can say about it, that's a pretty tight model about how religion works. Mm -hmm. um, that religious meaning is universally translatable, even as the kind of outward elements of religion might look different. And this idea that you could really reach people in quite profound ways leads people like Lansdale, this intelligence officer, to support programs that just don't work. He's really involved in uh, Cuba, he's involved in the Philippines, he's involved in South Vietnam. Mm. And he again and again um, is convinced that the way forward is um, what he calls spiritual warfare. So sort of understanding what religion is and, and why it's important to people and, and really paying attention to uh, details that a lot of his colleagues thought were just kind of crazy to pay attention to. Like, you know, um, he, he thought it really mattered, for example, to know what Vietnamese people thought or what they associated certain colors with, like which color was associated with death or happiness mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. He would use these to kind of inform his uh, various operations and they often didn't quite pan out. But at the same time, it, it's a remarkable testament to this idea that religion is the way forward. Especially in this battle with the communist Soviet Union. Right, right. So your book ends in the 1980s, but I'm curious to ask you, so after the end of the Cold War, do you have a sense of how the CIA has viewed religion around the world in the absence of the so-called godless Soviet Union as America's primary enemy? Yeah, so, um, well, like you're saying, in my book uh, ends kind of towards the tail end of the Cold War, um, right. and there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, one is just that the sources, which were already really difficult to find, as you can imagine, dry up very quickly. Mm. But as a result, what we know about that time period and how the CIA thinks of religion is largely material that's in the open, that's been reported by the media. So some of the stuff that's come out is kind of, um, you know, the stuff that gets the most attention is often the most dramatic. So uh, if your listeners want to see a really interesting image, uh, they can Google Operation Devil Eyes, which is a plan that the CIA hatched shortly after 9-11 to make Osama bin Laden action figures that would be made with a kind of like heat-sensitive material that as kids were playing with it would kind of like melt his skin off the face to reveal that he's actually a demon. Um, and the idea, I think, was that like you're playing with your, you know, bin Laden action figure and then his skin melts off and he's a demon and that's bad and so you stop supporting him. I think that was kind of the idea. Uh. They produce some of those, they work with, I think it's Hasbro to do it, and it ends up sort of getting pulled before uh, totally going into the field. But there's a couple things to note with examples like that, which is the first is to say that that's not necessarily representative of what the CIA does most of the time. Mm. But another thing to say is that, you know, again, there's definitely echoes in there of what I talk about in my book, that these kind of dramatic operations that are built on people's ideas or beliefs being really deterministic for how they're going to behave in the world, that if you can kind of change how they think, you can change how they act. And at the same time, of course, I mean, the biggest change is the legacy of 9-11. Mm -hmm. And so after 9-11, which certainly uh, reorients a lot of U.S. intelligence work, there's an increased focus on Islam, of course, 
but there's also an increased focus on Islam without necessarily some of the cushioning, some of the interpretive cushioning that happened in the Cold War, which earlier presented Islam as like maybe a little bit backwards, but still basically good because it's religious, mm-hmm. that's largely gone. And so instead, right, you get some of the stuff that we talked about with the Iranian revolution, which is that Islam is a blast from the past. It's really old and ancient and not really suited for the modern world. Um, And you get some of these really troubling ideas about Muslims that they, you know, only understand force or they just believe whatever they hear at the mosque or something. Hmm. And so I think, you know, in in some ways, the post-Cold War story, of course, changes in response to global events, but it never fully moves away from the fact that the people doing this work are Americans who are shaped in really profound ways by American culture. Fascinating. Well, thank you for this interesting conversation and your important work. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Graziano. You can find an excerpt from his book, Aaron into the Wilderness of Mirrors, Religion and the History of the CIA, in The Revealer's upcoming November issue at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Aaron into the Wilderness of Mirrors wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode episode next month that ties in quite well with what Mike was just describing. We'll be exploring the persistence of Islamophobia in America. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.